uh, during this series, which this is the last one for this series for now. We might come back to this one when we need uh, a couple of shorter series because there is so much, I think, to do with this. Uh, Low-key, small lives made big. Uh, And we've looked at some characters, some of which are obscure and some of which are not as obscure. But they all started from something small and became something big through God. We have seen people stand up against their enemies through the power of God and defeat what seemed to be the undefeatable. We have seen someone love an enemy and invite that enemy into the community of God, even going so far as to be a part of extending grace to someone who did not know what grace really meant. We have seen God do great things through normal people, people whose names we never would have known had God not have done something through them. And that's something that we fail to remember, I think, sometimes when we look at the Bible and all that it says and all the people that it tells us about is this. The only reason we know who they are is because of God and God doing something through their lives. They are a part of the story that God wants to tell. And we have seen God throughout the Bible do great things through people. But sometimes, and we, we talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, sometimes, this is true for me, it's easy for me to be discouraged because sometimes I feel like what I do doesn't matter. You, you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you can identify with this a little bit, that what I do for God doesn't matter. Now, if I, as a full-time professional Christian, have those feelings, I'm sure that you do too. Because I know all of the things that I get to do, all the moments that I'm invited into people's lives, all the times that I get to teach them and tell them, and sometimes even I feel like, just does it matter? Am I making a difference in the world? And I've confessed this to you already, and I want to just say it again Sometimes I want the big answer, the great movement, the life change. But we don't always get that, do we? In fact, sometimes the things that we may be doing for God or think that we're doing for God may be so small or in our eyes so inconsequential that we may think, what was the point of doing it at all? Now, I want to share with you our first principle this morning that I want you to hold on to through the rest of this lesson today. When you think that way, that what you're doing for God doesn't matter, you think that those thoughts are all about you and your ability to do something for God in the world. But when you are saying that you're not sure that what you have done for God matters, you're not questioning yourself, you are questioning God and His ability to do something through even the smallest thing. Let me tell you something hard to wrap your minds around this morning. You don't know what God is going to do 
through even the smallest act of obedience. You don't know. And the moment you start writing off your efforts is the moment you start writing off God. Our story today comes from 2 Kings chapter 22 through 23. And here is the very quick and dirty background to this story. The people of God had asked for a king because they wanted to be like all other nations, so God warned them that about everything that would come along with them having a king just like everyone else. He reminded them that he was their king, but the people still wanted a king, a human, physical, in our kingdom king. So God gave them Saul, who was not such a great king. Or I should say God allowed them to have Saul. But then came David and his son Solomon, and, and David was a great king, even though he made some pretty serious mistakes. And he loved God with all his heart. And under David's reign, the people were united, north and south, and they rose to heights as a nation that they had never really even dreamed of. It was the big movement of God in the world. Solomon took over when David passed, and he guided Israel to heights of power and wealth that were beyond what anyone ever could have believed. But Solomon did not cling to God as his father David had. He, his heart was led away by wealth and his many, many, many wives and girlfriends. And I don't mean many small, I mean many lots, just to make that clear. When Solomon passed, God split the nation into two. Tribes warred against each other, and the people of God became vulnerable to all the enemies that surrounded them. And, and since that time, God had been trying desperately to reach his people, to draw them back, to, to have them hear what it is that he wanted for them, and, and looking for sort of any shimmer of hope, any, any little piece of light here in the darkness that was becoming the people of God. He sent prophets to them repeatedly, uh, men and women who were co commissioned to go to the people and speak on behalf of God. But the people of God were ruled by evil kings who did not honor God. They worshipped every single foreign god that they could. They worshipped idols and put idols in all of the holy places. So God decided that he was going to give up the northern kingdom of Israel. And ultimately they fell to the Assyrian Empire and the armies of Sargon II my favorite Sargon. But God had made a covenant with David, and he was going to keep his promise. So he allowed the southern kingdom, Judah, which is where Jerusalem and the temple and everything else was, to stand firm even though they had a rocky relationship with God. So you see this pattern uh, of there being good kings and bad kings. Um, kings that know God and uphold the standards of God and kings that have forgotten about God altogether. They had a good king in Hezekiah who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed all the idols from the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles, which if you remember from our story 50-week uh, <laughs> series, the Asherah poles were literally poles of wood that they would just put uh, up on the altar and worship. Uh, so he removed all of those things, and the Lord was with Hezekiah, and he was successful in whatever he undertook. 
Um, he rebelled against the king of Syria and did not serve him. And he was given great victories because of his faith in God. But it did not last because Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, was not such a good egg. Um, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so this is sort of a pattern we're going to see. But Hezekiah removes all the idols, cleanses all the high places, brings the people of God back to God. And then his son, Manasseh, puts everything back. I don't know if they just kept all the idols in storage somewhere. Um, so that they could just go to the idol closet, you know, and pull things out. But they just rebuilt everything that was torn back down. And the Bible says this about Manasseh. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord. Of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple. They say that twice. You know why they say that twice? Because it really stinks. It is like the ultimate act of rebellion against God to put another God's form or likeness or representation into the temple of the one true God. So in summary, the people of God were a mess and they have gone back and forth and back and forth. And at the point of the time that we're going to pick up the story, they were in full-blown idolatry mode. So into this story comes three or four people, one of which you've heard of, the others which you probably haven't. The first that you've heard of is King Josiah. Uh, this is the description we get of Josiah from 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 2, if you want to look it up in your Bibles. It'll also be here on the screen with us. If you want to follow along this morning, we will be in chapters 22 and 23 of 2 Kings. This is what it says. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or the left. <clears throat> now, do you realize how extraordinary of a description this is? This is pretty amazing. And the reason why it's amazing is simple. I mean, right off the bat, we know that even though Josiah comes from people who turned away from God, he was true to God. And this is a remarkable statement because, think about this, all of the temple and worship practices had changed years before Josiah ever came on the scene. Consequently, he did not grow up with an idealized understanding of what it meant to worship God. Some of the most influential religious leaders in his life were probably those who worshipped other gods. There were mediums, psychics, and priests of the other gods that had given power long before Josiah was born. I mean, for crying out loud, when he goes to the temple, there's a big stick of wood there that people are worshipping. So the fact that Josiah is true to God in spite of all these things is remarkable. And the question that I have is, how is it possible that he was so true to God when he grew up in a time where God was barely around? Where his father and his grandfather had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
and it tried to tear down all that God had built. There was another issue, too. Um, well, well, just so you know, the, the, the priesthood and the prophets were still around, but they wouldn't have had as much influence in his life. But there was another issue, which is the book of law, which is what described what it meant to be part of the people of God had been lost, or at the very least, misplaced, or at the worst, hidden somewhere back where no one could find it. It wasn't in open view for anyone to look at or to study. So, the year that he turned 18, Josiah, something crazy happened. He sent his secretary, Shapin, to the temple of the Lord to meet with Hilkiah, the high priest. So there still was a high priest that was at the temple. Not sure what he was doing, uh, but there was still a high priest at the temple. Uh, he wanted, uh, Josiah wanted Chapin to collect the money that had been taken to the temple and to pay all of the contractors that had been doing stonework and woodwork and rebuilding different things around the temple. So he sent his secretary there to take care of that. So Chapin gets to the temple uh, of the Lord to meet with Hilkiah. And Hilkiah told Chapin, uh, hey, here's the money, here's everything that you need, and also I found this book. It's the book of the law. So he hands it over to Shapin, and Shapin takes a look at it and says, oh, this seems important. And he takes it, took it back to Josiah. And he told Josiah, hey, just so you know, we got all the money, we paid all the contractors, everyone's getting paid on time, all the work's being done, it's great. Good news. And we found this book of the law. And Josiah has Shapin read it to him. And this was Josiah's response from verses 11 through 13. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Akim son of Shapin, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shapin the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in the book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Now this was, I think it's a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around how dramatic this reaction was. It showed that Josiah understood who God was, and more importantly, he understood that they were just plain wrong. What they had been was wrong. What they were doing now was wrong. And so in response to hearing about how wrong they are, notice what he does not do. What does he not do? He doesn't say, well, you know, we've tried real hard to follow God. He doesn't say, well, we followed all these idols because we were surrounded by other people that have idols. He doesn't say, you know, my dad and grandpa, they were just hard-headed. You know those old coots. He didn't say any of those things, right? Instead, his response to hearing about how wrong they were was to do what? Tear his clothes. 
Why does he do that? Because the only proper response to hearing about how far away they were from God was to take his fine clothes and to tear them to shreds and to show that before this God that he had just heard about for the first time in this way, he was nothing. This is not the only place we see this kind of reaction in the Bible, by the way. Uh, When Jonah was sent to Nineveh, to deliver the people of Nineveh. He doesn't want to go, big fish, lots of swimming, lots of vomiting up onto the shore, right? And he gets to Nineveh, and he tells Nineveh that God is angry with them, and what does the king of Nineveh do? He tears his clothes and puts ashes on his head, and then he makes a command that the entire city of Nineveh should all tear their clothes and put ashes on their head. And Jonah, who didn't even want to go to this place because he didn't want these, these people to be delivered, is all of a sudden surrounded by people in ripped clothes and dirty with ashes who are humbling themselves before God. David, when he was called out by the prophet Nathan, and he realized finally how far off he had gone, what did he do? He ripped his clothes and poured ashes on his head, put on sackcloth, and humbled himself before God. This brings us to the second thing that we need to take note of today, which is not something we can overlook in the least, and that is this. There is only one response, I think, initial response to hearing either that God wants to do something through you at all or in understanding how far away you are from him, and that response is humility. Humility. If God is going to do great things in us, we have to first realize that he is God and we are not and that he's not following our plan, we're following his. And we have to break this habit that we have of wanting God to fit inside this box of what we want to do in the world and understand that he is God and the only proper response from us when we are in his presence is to humble ourselves before him and to say, you are God and I am a mess. We need to recognize the ways that we have gotten away from serving the one true God because without this humility, we will continue to wrestle for control with him. And so I want to put this last point in here because this is sort of counterintuitive to us. There is nothing shameful about humbling humbling yourself before God. You hear me? There is nothing shameful about humbling yourself before God. In fact, it is the only right response. If you are going to discover what God wants to do in your life, Josiah wanted to know what to do because he didn't know what to do. He had humbled himself before God, but because of how things had been his whole life and because of how the system was supporting all these other things, he kind of didn't know what to do. So he asked around, who should we talk to? And one name came up. It's, I know, again, one of your top five favorites, 
Hulda. Who was Hulda? Well, she was a prophetess that lived in the city of Jerusalem out by the walls. And so uh, Josiah sent his representatives to her to talk to her. So they go, they tell her, we have found the book of the law, we have uh, shown it to Josiah. Josiah has humbled himself, he wants to know what to do and what's going on. And this is what she says to him. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. Is that the message you expected? No, right? Because look, they're turning back to God, right? So everything should just like move on to the next stage, but it can't. Her message was a difficult one. And what she tells them is that God will not turn his anger from Judah. Why? Because Judah doesn't love him. Judah doesn't worship him. Judah doesn't serve him. They have forsaken him. They have put up, idol, they have put up idols everywhere. They have temple prostitutes that you can go and sleep with to honor these other gods. So don't come here and tell me that Judah's going to be okay, because they're not. Josiah, you're going to be okay, because you have heard the word of God, you've responded to the, hurt, the word of God, but God is not going to reverse course on this whole thing. The iceberg's ahead, baby. Judah's going to hit it. This takes us to our next point. God needs people who will be faithful and represent him in any way possible, even if things can't be reversed back to the perfect form of what they are. God needs imperfect people working in an imperfect world, you see. God was grateful that Josiah was true to him. And even though the ultimate end result might not change, he wanted Josiah to know this, that the things he was doing mattered. It mattered that he humbled himself before God. It, it mattered that he desires to turn the people of Judah back to God. And even though he may not be able to reverse everything that has been done from all of these years, what he is going to do matters. 
This is an important thing for us to note because sometimes when it comes to us representing God in the world, like I said earlier, it can feel like because we're not changing everything around us that what we're doing doesn't really even matter. But I want you to know that even if the world ignores us and puts us down and wars against us, representing God still matters to God. And this is even more true with the sacrifice of Jesus. We have to remember this story is happening pre-Jesus. How much more true is it that we need to keep representing God in the world now that we have a Savior who has died for everyone and offers salvation and hope to all of those who would hear about him. So now in Christ, when we speak of God, we do have the opportunity to change someone's life forever because, as we saw last week, there is no lost cause. There is only a cause. Josiah heard these words, and he was not going to let these words discourage him. I mean, yeah, he was going to be okay, but understand, he wanted Judah to turn back to God because that was the way it should have been. So Josiah decided that he needed to clean house. And boy, did he clean house. The king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So, He draws everyone together and he points out to them what he has discovered. This is who we are supposed to be. This is who we have been. We have to try to move back to this. And he reads the covenant and everyone agrees to the covenant. He needed everyone to know we have gotten off track and this is what it means to get back on track. And from that point, Josiah started undoing all that had been done by his father and his grandfather. He went around removing all the idols, all the holy places built for other gods. He destroyed the idols, killing some of the false priests. He broke up uh, temple prostitution rings. Here's just a snippet of what the next year of his life was like, starting in verse 19. Just as he had done in Bethel, because he had already done this in another place, Josiah removed all the shrines of the high places that the kings of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria and that had aroused the Lord's anger. Josiah slaughtered all the priests of those high places on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he went back to Jerusalem. The king gave this order to all the people, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. 
Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah from my presence as I removed Israel. And I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and the temple about which I said, my name shall be there. Okay, so the first thing to note is that Josiah really wasn't messing around. And he goes to pretty extreme lengths, doesn't he? I mean, he's burning bodies on altars. So it's pretty extreme. Why does he go to such extreme lengths? Anyone know? Because that is what God deserves. In his land with his people who had forsaken him and built these things for other gods, God deserves to have his space reclaimed. And Josiah goes around and he reclaims everything for God. He knew that the influence of these other gods had to be eradicated. So he got rid of all of he could, all that he could reclaiming the nation of Judah for God. And on top of that, he replaced those things with the things of God. And one of the most notable things he does is he has them celebrate Passover for the first time. Okay, here's why that's so significant. The writer tells us that they haven't celebrated Passover for generations. What does that mean? It means not only do they not know God, but they don't know themselves. Because who are they? They are the chosen people of God who were delivered from slavery and who were brought out of Egypt and given this land. And so by having them celebrate Passover, he is inviting them back into who they are and who God desired for them to be. And there is no better way to get them in touch with that than to remind them of the time that God delivered them. It is important to reclaim the things of God, especially if they have been given away to something else. And Josiah knew that Judah was ultimately going to fall, but he was determined to put God back on his throne and have him there for as long as he lived. And they all live happily ever after, right? No. Josiah was killed by one of the pharaohs who was attacking from another place. And guess what his son did? Put all the idols back. Rebuild all of the places. So before you judge God and Josiah about how far they went to remove everything, evidently they didn't go far enough. Because everything was back replacing God within a year after Josiah was dead. And what God knew proved to be true, that Judah wasn't really his anymore. He was not really their God. They were not really his people. And everything he said was going to happen, happened. So I know this is a really encouraging story to tell you as we close this service here today and this series for the past couple of weeks, but I think it's an important one. Because I want you to hear me very clearly, okay? 
It only takes one influential person to see a generation fall. One person in the right place at the right time with the right kind of power. But conversely, it only takes one person to bring the truth back to the front. In this case, though, it was not just Josiah. It was Hilkah who found the law, recognized it was important, and gave it to Shaphan. It was Shaphan who took it to the king and said, I think you need to take a look at this, and read it out loud to the king. It was Huldah who spoke the truth about God and who God was and what was going to happen and guided the king to his next steps. And we see it in Josiah, who heard the law and responded to what it said. And did these changes last? No, they didn't. But let me ask you this. Did what those four people did, did what they did, that sounds terrible, did what they did, did their actions matter? Absolutely. Because a generation of people were exposed to the one true God. When it comes to doing the work of God, we might need to rethink our ideas of what success really means. We may want the fireworks and the new buildings and all those different things, which maybe that is what God wants for us as well. But we can't fall into a trap of because we, because we don't see how everything's going to go and what God is going to do that we start assuming that God isn't going to do anything. When this shows us, this story shows us that we don't know what God is going to do with the smallest act. Josiah was ready, you see, but someone had to find the book and pass that book to someone else who would be willing to take the book to the king and read it out loud. All of these things had to happen through small people and one really big person in order for people to come and see who God is. You don't know what God is going to do through the small choices that you make, through the big choices that you make, through the small things you're doing in people's lives. You don't know what's going to happen through that, through the kindness or love that you show to someone else. So the last thing we need to remember is that all lives are small, church. All lives are small. It is God who makes them big. All lives are small. It is God who makes them big. And we believe the same thing, that our lives are meaningful and good, but our lives are small. And we believe that God can help make them into something big. And it may not be our definition of big, but you know what? That's okay, because anything that God chooses to do through you is a big thing. You hear me? Anything God chooses to do through you is a big thing. If you get to change one life for God, that is a big thing. Amen. 
if you get to introduce one person to Jesus, that is a big thing. Because the story is not how capable we are, it is how capable God is. And our request as we close this morning is that God would just use us in any way, in any form, any shape, for as long as he wants, and that we would allow ourselves to become something bigger through him. Amen.